Uh, the reading this morning is from Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, and then verse 13 through 16. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. Morning. Or really morning. I don't know what it feels like right now. Um, but I did want to say welcome to all of you who normally attend the first hour. Um, I'm sorry that your, your seat was probably already taken, um, or, and apologize to you, the second hour who had to fight for your seat. But uh, glad to see all of you here uh, this morning, whatever time it really is. I wanted to share a bit of a story. This is kind of a blast uh, from the past for me all the way back to high school. Uh, it's a story about two different friends and two different reactions from those friends when I shared the gospel with them. Uh, like I said, I was in high school. I had only recently begun to kind of understand what it meant to be a Christian, though I had accepted Christ in second grade in, in the Iwana program uh, at, at my church. And I was eager to share with these guys a, the message of, of hope that I had found. Uh, so two different friends, two different occasions, two different gospel presentations. I don't really remember what I said, how I said it, or even if I said it all that clearly, but I remember their reactions. See, Ryan didn't want to accept Jesus because he didn't think he could follow all the rules that Christians are supposed to follow. So I tried to explain to, Ryan, or tried to, explain to him, to Ryan, that Jesus, you know, he didn't care about you following the rules. What he cared about was that you would accept him by faith, and then once you accept God's free grace, then he begins to help you follow the rules and, and keep the rules of Christian living. Uh, Ryan, though, he's like, I can't do it. I never could do it. So he decided not to even try. Uh, Scott, on the other hand, Scott loved the message of God's free grace. Uh, he told me it sounded like the best deal imaginable because he could ask for forgiveness, do whatever he wanted, uh, a sentiment he punctuated with a certain movement of his lower body, and then said, I can ask Jesus for forgiveness. I can ask for forgiveness, do whatever I want, ask for forgiveness again. This is great. So I tried to explain to him, well, once you accept Jesus' free grace, then, then God wants you to follow the rules. It's like there, there's things that, that you have to, to do. You can't just accept Jesus and then do whatever you want. Uh, but Scott wanted to, to follow his heart and do whatever his heart told him to do, so he walked away. Now, I don't think I did a very good job of explaining Christ and the message of salvation to either of these guys, mostly because I myself didn't understand, didn't have an answer to this question of, okay, after I believe, then what? After I become a Christian, then how am I supposed to live? Is, is Christianity and the Christian life all about following a set of rules and just doing your best to obey as many as you can? 
uh, or is it about doing whatever we want and enjoying God's free grace? What is it? Now, your personal answer to that question may depend a lot on the, the kind of Christianity that you may have grown up in or the, the kind of background that you were saved out of. I've noticed that people who grew up in households that were more Christian in name than in practice or who were saved out of very self-indulgent lifestyles uh, tend to think of the Christian life as obedience to a new and better and God-given guidelines for life, uh, rules for living. And in those rules, I mean, in, in those guidelines, they find life. They find uh, a life that they didn't experience in their previous life. But others, and I kind of include myself in this camp, others who grew up in more conservative or fundamentalistic or more restrictive rules-bound households, uh, or people who were saved out of sort of a deep sense of their own inability to measure up, people like me, people like us, uh, tend to think of the Christian life as a life of freedom, of a life uh, no longer bound by the law of good Christian behavior, because we don't have to live up to that anymore. We're, we're free. For, the, for those people, for people like me, or with that kind of background, maybe the, the Christian life is about finding freedom from all those old restrictions that sort of bound us. So which is it? Or is it both? Or is it neither? Now, my goal this morning as we explore Galatians 5 is to convince you that the Christian life is not defined as a life of keeping the rules. Whatever we define those rules to be and wherever we source the origin for those rules, the Christian life cannot be boiled down to simply do your best to obey. Uh, but neither is the Christian life defined as a life in, lived in the enjoyment of God's free grace, uh, being true to ourselves and to our heart's deepest desires as we kind of explore and figure out what it means to be made and you know, like, who did God make us to be? It's not a life of keeping the rules, and it's also not a life of just free enjoyment of God's grace. And nor is it a combination of the two. It's not trying to keep the rules as best as you can and then depending on God's grace when you fail. That's not the Christian life either. So what is it? Well, we're going to tackle that question this morning from Galatians 5, as I said. So as you're turning there, uh, which, by the way, it's on page 1157 of the, the Black Bible underneath the seat in front of you. Uh, while you're turning there, let me recap where we've come so far in this discipleship series we're calling Flourish, uh, so I can kind of set this message in context. You'll recall that the first movement, the first six or seven sermons of this series since the beginning of the year was primarily focused on what it means to be informed, if we're going to be informed and win some ambassadors. What does it mean to be informed about the world around us? And we talked about a lot of different things, and there's a summary of, of that whole part of the series you can read linked in Faith News. Uh, but basically, to just put it in a sentence, we live in a secular age. No beliefs are taken for granted. So given that kind of a world, how then does God form us to be his ambassadors in that world? Second, third of this discipleship series has been focused on how God forms us. How do we become ambassadors, good ambassadors? So we started this part of the series by looking at Colossians 3. We noted that God, uh, one of the primary ways he uses to form us, perhaps the primary way he uses to form us is through gathered worship, through when we together rehearse in, in a way that kind of hits us in the gut when we rehearse the story of God's goodness to us in Christ, of Jesus' sacrificial life, death, burial, and resurrection. As we tell ourselves again that story and it hits us, it begins to transform us, realigning our hopes, our loves, and our deepest desires back onto God through Christ. 
Then the last two weeks, uh, Jeff was up here uh, walking us through this understanding that any sort of character change, as we're being formed as ambassadors, any sort of character change requires two things, a commitment and a community. It requires a commitment because knowledge is not enough. There needs to be an act of the will as well. And a community because you can't do it by yourself. We need a group of people who will not only help us along the way, show us the way, keep us accountable for the way, but also give us a picture of what it looks like when we're farther along the way. Discipleship requires a commitment and a community. Now today, we're shifting back to look at ourselves somewhat on a more individualistic level as so we talk about what do, what do I need to do? What do me, individually, you, on your own, what do you need to do to be formed as an ambassador? And any, any artist, any sculptor, anyone will tell you that if you're going to take a lump of clay and form something, you need to know what you're going to form. What's the end goal? If you know what the end goal is, then you know what the general shape needs to be, and you know what sort of tools and what sort of practices are going to be required to form yourself in that shape which is basically the outline of the sermon this morning, as we look at the, the purpose for which we're here. Why are we here? Why are we on this earth? What kind of life has God created us to live? Why are we here? If we know what we're here for, uh, then we know kind of what, what character is going to be required for us to live that kind of life. And if we have a decent idea of what, what kind of character traits contribute to fulfilling that purpose, we'll be able to put some habits and practices into effect that will form us, that will shape us towards that end. So as we go through Galatians 5, three main movements. The first, purpose. What is it? Do we have one? How do we find it? Two, character. What kind of person do I need to be to live into that purpose? And three, habit. What practices are going to help me get there? Purpose, character, habit. You ready to jump in? All right, let's do it. Galatians 5. We're going to begin by discovering purpose. What is the purpose? Why does God have us here? And it shows up in verse five, or chapter 5, verse 1, right away. For freedom, Christ has set us free. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. For freedom, for the purpose of freedom, Christ has set us free. Uh, another, one person paraphrases it. We've been liberated in order to experience liberty. We've been freed to be free. We've been set free by Christ for the sake of and in order to discover and experience and exercise and enjoy true freedom. Which sounds pretty good. I like the idea of freedom. Until I started thinking about what it actually meant. You know, we've tended to think of freedom as absolute, unfettered choice. This is the general operative de definition that most of us uh, work under, that freedom is to have complete ability to choose with no restrictions at all. Absolute, unfettered choice. You know, in other words, we're free only so long as our actions and our choices are not constrained in some way or limited in some way, or decided for us by some authority or some social structure or some expectation of behavior. We have this feeling that as long as there are rules limiting us or circumstances preventing us from doing what we want, we're not really free. To actually be free would be to be in the position where we can test the limits and break through. You know, there's no right, no wrong, no rules for me anyway. I'm free. Right? Or at least that's, 
That's what it feels like. But I, I don't think that's the freedom that Paul had in mind when he used this word, when he says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. To exercise freedom, Christ has set us free. Because for the entirety of human existence up until about the 18th or 19th century, uh, freedom was not understood as uh, being free from external compulsion or being free from rules, restrictions, roles, or guidelines. Uh, that's actually a fairly new idea in the last 100, 200 years or so, that to be free means to be free of absolutely any uh, suggestion, coercion, control, guideline, track, anything. To be free is to just freely choose all on your own. Uh, before the last couple of centuries, uh, everyone talking about freedom was talking about not being free from, but being free to. There's a difference. To be free from is to say, well, now I have the ability to choose to do whatever I want. To be free to is to be free to live as I ought to live. Not necessarily as I want to, but as I ought to. Because, see, there was the belief that the world was created in a specific way in which humans could more or less live freely within that world as they, as they reckoned with the way the world was. And to... Uh, to kind of just do whatever you wanted was to come up against uh, the way the world actually was. To be free was to choose to operate within the restrictions that were there in a way that enabled us to find greater freedom. To be free, in other words, was, was to be able to choose what was right and to, and to desire to choose what was right, what was best for us. Let me offer an illustration from an old uh, ethics professor to see if this helps. He suggests we picture an old married couple. Uh, they've been living together faithfully for, for many decades. Uh, however, the husband in this particular couple has struggled with temptations to infidelity for the entirety of their marriage. Now, he's never given in to those temptations. He has consistently kept himself free from infidelities, resisted that temptation, and has stayed faithful. His wife, on the other hand, has never struggled with the temptation towards infidelity. They've been together so long that she's secure in the relationship, she uh, is comfortable with their marriage, does not imagine, much less be tempted to find a, a relationship with someone else. So, which one is more free? Now, if we tend to think of freedom as the ability to choose whatever we want, then the person with more choices is the person who's more free. In that case, we could, we could think that the husband is more free because he has the ability to choose a wider range of options. He's got more options avail to, available to him. For him, infidelity is a live option on the table. He could choose or not choose as he desired. So on one perspective, he's more free, she's less free because for her, it's not even a choice. It's not a choice she would even consider making. She has less to choose from, therefore she's less free. But I would argue there's a, there's a better way to think about freedom within this relationship, and that she, in fact, is the one who is more free. Because she is more free to choose and consistently choose what is good and what is right within their marriage. He has to work at it. For her, it comes naturally. See, he is free from restrictions, but has voluntarily placed himself back under a few of them. She is free to the marriage. Because for her, she doesn't even need the rule to tell her that it's right or wrong. It's just not even thinkable. 
she wouldn't even think of doing it. In that illustration, the wife is actually more free than her husband because she has less choices. Let's consider another example, this one without the moral overtones to it. Um, I've got a few woodworking tools in my garage, nothing major, I'm, I'm certainly no craftsman. Uh, one of the tools that I have that I pull out every so often is called a plane. Now, a plane has a very specific function. It's a tool that holds a blade at a specific angle and a specific depth so that when you run it over a board, it takes off a very thin shaving of the top layer of the wood. And in that way, you can kind of you know, lower out the high spots and level the entire board all the way across. You may plane the face of a board. You may plane the end of a board. But regardless, you use this tool. This tool basically has two parts. Uh, there's the blade, or a chisel, basically, uh, and the jig that it's held in, the, the frame of the plane. Now, if you separate the chisel from the rest of the plane, you now have a freer tool. With that chisel, you can now do more things than you could with it before. You can take it, you can take a hammer, and you can knock the corner off of something. You could kind of work it at an angle. You could knock an edge off. You could just start stabbing things. You could throw it at someone else in the shop who's annoying you. There's all sorts of things you could do with this blade, but there's one thing you can't do. You can't use it to plane off a very thin shaving of wood across the surface of a board. Because you have freed the chisel from its restrictions, it's no longer free to do what it was designed to do in the first place, which is plane a board. See, the difference between freedom from and the freedom to is that freedom from is simply negative. I don't want any restrictions. Freedom to is positive. It says there's a purpose towards which I am aiming that requires some restraint around it so that I can actually accomplish that purpose. When Paul says freedom, for freedom Christ has set us free, he's, he's not saying we're absolutely free of restrictions. That was kind of um, Scott's view of the gospel when I tried to share with him. Um, he was like, great, God has set me free. For freedom Christ has set me free. I, I can do whatever I want now. That, that's not what he means. When Paul says we're free, it's not like taking the weight off of a balloon and just letting it fly. We're not free from, we're free to. In other words, to be truly free is to limit our freedom of choice in order to find a freedom of purpose. So to, be to be truly free is to limit our freedom of choice in order to find a freedom of purpose. The balloon may be more free when it's not tied down, but it brings no joy to my daughter unless she's holding the other end of the string. Or like musicians in an ensemble up here. Every musician has to scrupulously follow the rules about rhythm and tempo and pitch and even what song we've decided to play if any of them are going to be free to make music, especially make music together. To be really free, the freedom that Paul is talking about is, is to limit our freedom of choice in order to discover a freedom of purpose. That's what Paul has in mind. But I think that prompts the question within us. It's like, okay, if I'm going to be free for a purpose, what's the purpose? What am I free to? Let's scan down a little bit. Look at, at verse 13. After kind of a, a short diversion, Paul comes back to this main topic and, and 
says again, he's sort of situating the argument of this whole chapter within these few touch points that we're looking at. Verse 13, for you were called to freedom, brothers. You were called to freedom only. Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. That sounds like what um, Ryan was saying about Christianity, that, ah, okay, I've got these rules and I need to obey them. He, Paul's, on the one hand, it sounds like he's saying there's no rules, do, do whatever feels, feels right, whatever God has led you to do. On the other side, it sounds like, well, now there's rules again and I need to do the rules, but we have to keep these verses together, somewhat in tension, and, but mostly in harmony. Uh, you were called to freedom, brothers, only here's what that freedom's not for. It's not to be used as an opportunity for the flesh, to indulge the things that are perishing that don't last. But here's what our freedom's for. Through love, serve one another. You were called to freedom. Use your freedom as an opportunity to, through love, serve one another. He summarizes it in verse 14. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. When he says we're free... He's not saying, you know, you're free from. Because we're free from the law. That's the argument he's making in all of Galatians. We're free from the Mosaic law. We are no longer under the obligation of the law because the law couldn't, following the law couldn't bring us the freedom to love. It only gave us the freedom to obey. He says, you're not under that anymore. You're not under the compulsion. You're not enslaved to the law or enslaved to yourself anymore. You've been freed by Christ. Now you're free with a purpose. You're free to do Something You're free to serve one another through love, to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, in calling back to the whole law, Paul is taking this argument and he's sort of stepping back out of this, the, the context of just Galatians 5, and, and he wants us to consider the context of the entire scriptural storyline. To say that the whole law is fulfilled in this one word, this one command, love your neighbor as yourself, is, is to say look at not just the law, but look at the whole story in which the law was given. Look at why it was given and how this all came about. That'll help point towards the purpose. Now, because Paul's telling us to basically look at the entire Bible, we don't have time to do that this morning. Uh, even though we did get an extra hour, we, we don't have the time to, to dig into all of this. So I'm, I'm going to give us a, just a brief outline we have to situate this within the story of all of Scripture, which is the story of a God who created humanity in his own image to enjoy a relationship of reciprocal love, but not, not just to enjoy a relationship of love, but to, on, on behalf of God, serve as his priests and his rulers to the creation around See, the garden story tells us, if it doesn't tell us anything else, it tells us that God created humanity to mediate his presence to his creation and to rule over that creation and bring comprehensible order to it through the naming of it and through the propagation of both the species and the garden itself. See, humankind was created to be priests on behalf of God to the creation to multiply and, and to literally spread the kingdom of God around the globe by expanding the borders of the garden. That's what we were here to do. The garden wasn't supposed to stay a, a tiny little spot in, in the Fertile Crescent somewhere. The kingdom of God was 
to expand around the globe. God had created people to enter into that mission with him, to take the garden, the paradise, uh, the center of human flourishing, and expand it around the globe. That's mankind's purpose. But Adam and Eve chose, rather than to be free to do that, they'd rather be free from God and free to do whatever they wanted. So they chose to rebel, uh, to walk away from that high and and holy calling, to walk away from a relationship of freedom and flourishing, to live in a kingdom they could scratch out of the ground with their own making. Story after story of the Old Testament shows us a God who is calling his people back to his original vision of flourishing, his original vision of of being his priests, being his his rulers of the world. And again and again, his people are saying, no, I'd, I'd rather stick with you know, this little kingdom that I've got here, I don't, I don't want to be part of, I don't want to be part of yours or part of your plan. Till finally God sent his son, he sent Jesus to live what was really the first truly human life, the first truly free life. Not free in the sense that he was free from, but that he was free to live as God intended. And through Jesus, God offers us uh, this freedom again. Jesus lived the humanity, the life of flourishing that we were created to live and died the death that was required to purchase out of our slavery. And when that, when that grasps us and when we grasp a hold of that reality and understand that, that Jesus died to redeem us from our self-made attempts at nation building, uh, we realize his offer of grace is an invitation back into the life that we were intended to have. What's left to us is to accept that invitation by faith and, like a child, uh, learn how to live the life of freedom, the life of flourishing that we long for, that we were designed for. Because for freedom, Christ has set us free. And then uh, we wait until we die and go to heaven and finally experience it. Right? Or we, you know, in the meantime, keep the rules of good Christian behavior and do your best, right? Right? No, that, that's, that's not the life that we're called to. The life that we are called to here on earth today has a purpose. It has a reason. Uh, one author summarizes it like this. He says, what are we here for? Well, the fundamental answer is that what we're here for is to become genuine human beings, reflecting the God in whose image we're made and doing so in worship on the one hand and in mission in its full and large sense on the other. Mission meaning more than just telling people about Jesus and inviting them into this life, though that is uh, an integral part of it, but mission in the sense of expanding God's God's rule, mediating God's rule around the world. He says we do this not least by following Jesus. See, if we look backwards towards Genesis and read the reason for which we're here, we also look forward towards revelation and read of the future that is to come, A, a promise that Jesus will one day return Set the world right, renew it, redeem it, and invite us into it to serve as priests and rulers of the new heaven and the new earth. And that's a promise, a future reality that we can begin to anticipate now. Now, if I made a statement, something like, um, I anticipate that it's going to snow later today, 
That could mean one of two things. One, it could mean, uh, given the weather conditions outside, barometric pressure and whatever else goes into that, uh, I can be reasonably confident that snow is in the forecast. It's coming in the future. It's coming later. But if I'm more like, um, more like a child and I'm wearing my parka and my hat and my gloves and my snow pants and my boots, and someone says, what are you doing? And I say, I anticipate that it's going to snow tonight. That's a, a totally different kind of anticipation. That implies not just a, a knowledge or an awareness of a future state, but also the preparation for it, the excitement for it that's happening now. See, we can prepare for our future role of redeemed priests and rulers. We can anticipate it now. When the new heavens and the new earth comes and our role in it comes, uh, we'll, we'll experience it fully, but we can experience it in part now. That's the purpose of the Christian life. The purpose of the Christian life is not to accept Christ by faith, do your best to follow the rules, and then enjoy heaven when you die. The purpose of the Christian life is through by faith in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection to be drawn into a new kingdom that is breaking into the world from the future. And in that kingdom to find the fully human life of flourishing we were designed for as God's priests and rulers in some small way now, but in, an, in a fully realized way in the future. See, if, if our purpose is simply to wait until we go to heaven when we die, well, then it doesn't really matter if you obey all the rules or if you follow your heart and do whatever you want. Because either way, you're going to die and go to heaven. That's not the purpose. The purpose is to become the kind of people now who can operate as, as God's priests and rulers as, as much as we're able in this world as we anticipate the world to come. And if that's the purpose, then there's a type of character that's required to help us achieve that purpose. Anyone who wants to accomplish a, a certain kind of mode of living or way of living is going to have to have a, a character that lines up with it. If you're timid, um, small, scared of sharp things and afraid of loud noises, you probably shouldn't be a dog trainer. You don't have the character for it. If you're the type of person who's gregarious and outgoing and you need lots of interaction and you need people dropping by all the time and talking and you need all that, you probably shouldn't be a computer programmer. You don't have the character for it. Now, thankfully, the kind of character we're talking about here or the kind of purpose we're talking about here takes all characters, all types, because it's not about personality. It's more about virtue. Let's, let's get into that. Galatians 5. 13, 14, you were called to freedom, brothers. Don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Don't put yourself back under an old law, but through love, serve one another. That's our purpose. Now, what kind of a character do we need to have to begin to realize that purpose now? Verse 16, Paul says, but I say, walk by the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Walk by the Spirit. Now, you may recall the events of uh, January 15th, 2009. Uh, we all saw it on, on TV. In early afternoon, U.S. Airways flight out of LaGuardia Airport in New York City hit a flock of Canada geese and was forced to make an emergency landing in the Hudson River. Uh, the, the incident, all told, took a total three minutes and ten seconds from impact to landing. 
And in those three minutes and 10 seconds, a number of vital decisions and actions had to take place. First, a bunch of major decisions. The pilot uh, had to decide, can I head back to LaGuardia? No, it's too far. Go to New Jersey? Again, too far. Uh, Put down on the New Jersey Turnpike? Too risky. Only one option, land in the Hudson. I read a summary recently of all the things that the pilot and co-pilot had to do in that three minutes or two minutes and about 45 seconds at this point between when they decided on a path of action and had to execute it. Uh, They had to shut down the engines, set the speed correctly to glide as long as possible, put the nose down to maintain speed, disconnect the autopilot, override the flight management system, seal the plane to make it as waterproof as possible, bank left to approach the Hudson heading south along with the current not against it, Straighten up the plane and bring the nose up so that they didn't hit nose first and tumble end over end, and make sure to land on the water perfectly level so the wing wouldn't catch and then send them spinning. And they did it in about two minutes and 40 seconds or so. It was called the miracle on the Hudson uh, by, by the media because no lives were lost. And on one level, yeah, it, it was a miracle. But I think we tend to call those kind of things miracles because that's easier than seeing them as the product of a lifetime of preparation for just such a moment as that. It was a product of years of training, finely honed habits and practices which enabled the pilot, the co-pilot, to make split-second decisions and to do for them what came naturally. Now, if you or I were in charge of that flight on that day, having perhaps just qualified for that plane, what would we have done? Step one, find the emergency response manual. (laughs) Step two, look up geese, comma, Canada. (laughs) Step three, complete engine loss, no thrust. Cross-reference that with overpopulated area and no airports nearby. Uh, Determine, should I try to land on a road? No, I guess I'll need to land on a water. Look up landing, comma, water, and begin to apply the steps necessary for a correct water landing, which by about this time we would have crash landed in the Bronx. None of us, if we had done what came naturally, could have done what that pilot and co-pilot did landing the plane on the river. But for the pilot, his entire life had been an exercise, a, a practice, you could call it a habit, of exercising restraint, cool judgment under pressure, courage, and the concern for others needed to pull off a quote-unquote miracle. He said in an interview afterwards, he said, one way of looking at this might be that for 42 years, I've been making small, regular deposits in a bank of experience, education, and training. And on January 15th, the balance was sufficient that I could make a very large withdrawal. If you keep reading in Galatians 5, verses 16 through 24, which we don't have time to go through, they they describe the small, regular deposits in the bank of character, the bank of virtue uh, that God calls us to. Small deposits of action and activity that, in a sense, uh, they they build, they, they earn interest. And as they grow and as they earn interest, they, they work this odd transformative effect from the inside out of helping us to become what we're intended to be. I know I'm mixing metaphors here a little bit, but it's, it's a lot like, it's more like a seed planted within us that grows as we water it than it is like a, just a pile of skills and abilities. It, it, it literally changes us from the inside out. 
Look again at verse 16. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Walk by the Spirit. Paul's not giving us a new law here. So don't take this as, okay, I now have a new command, walk by the Spirit. It's not a command. It's, it's more like a path. You could think of the Mosaic law uh, or any law system that we put up around ourselves in order to try to get ourselves to behave the way we want. Uh, you could think of those law systems as a signpost. It's a signpost that says something like human flourishing this way, this far. But it's a signpost without a road. It's a sign without a path. There's, there's no way to travel what it's pointing at. We can do our best to kind of obey what the sign says, but the path will never lead to the freedom that we find in Christ. It requires the Spirit, the indwelling empowerment of the Spirit to find that road. You, you could say the Spirit himself is the path that is now laid out next to the sign of the law, saying human flourishing this way. The law itself was never intended to be the end. Any more than you, you, you take a journey by driving over to the sign that says where you're going to go and then camp there. The Spirit is the road. He himself is the path that we tread as we discover the life of freedom that Christ has bought for us and calls us to. Paul says in verse 16, walk by the Spirit. In verse 25, live by the Spirit. Keep in step with the Spirit. In between, there's a list of verses that describe what that doesn't look like and what it does. What it doesn't look like is in verse 19 and on, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and just to make sure you didn't leave anything out, things like these. You know, excited and eager participation in those things may feel like freedom, freedom from constraint, but it's certainly not freedom to. And if we are made to something and yet enslave ourselves for something else, we'll never find the freedom for which we were created. Verse 22, though, shows us what this walking by the Spirit does look like. It's the ninefold fruit of the Spirit, love. Notice how often love keeps showing up at the top of these kind of lists. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Each of these virtues, uh, for, for the grammar nerds out there, each of these virtues is in what you could call the subjunctive case. In other words, they're not virtues we possess on our own naturally. They don't just come in and flood us when we accept Christ, obviously, because self-control is one of them. If, we, if the others came naturally, we wouldn't need self-control. We'd already have them. We need the self-control to help gain the other eight. Uh, but they're subjunctive in the sense that we, we spend a lot of our life acting as if we loved. What would it look like if I did love? What would it look like if I had joy? What would, it, what would it look like if I felt peace? What, if, what would it look like if I could exercise patience or be kind or be good, be faithful, be gentle, be self-controlled? We spend most of our life asking ourselves, what would it look like if I did? And then we do that. And it's an intentional and chosen and repeated and agonizing and slow and difficult practice of slowly practicing, making little deposits so that at some point in the future, 
when you need the patience, when your kids are just at the, you're at the end of your rope and you need it, it comes out because that's become natural. See, there's no law against the fruit of the Spirit, Paul says in verse 23, because that kind of life, the fruit of the Spirit, is the kind of life that the law is trying to get us towards, but could never get us there on its own. See, our our purpose as redeemed priests and rulers mediating God's presence to the world around us requires a certain kind of character, a character that, that keeps in walk with the Spirit, that, keeps, that lives in the Spirit, that begins to live out second nature, as it were, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. If we want to be what we're called to be today, we've got to have the character required to begin to discover that. Discover that purpose. If we want to fulfill our calling to be genuine, image-bearing, God-reflecting human beings, if we want to, in our jobs, in our vocations, uh, bring God's wisdom and glory to, to birth in this world, as one author puts it, uh, through our you know, thousand different vocations, we'll, we'll need the character, the virtue, by which that genuine, image-bearing, God-reflecting life is formed. That's the fruit of the Spirit. Now, given that purpose and the character that gets us there, what what kind of habits do we need to put in place in order to enjoy that kind of character, to build that kind of character, to form it? Well, I've already mentioned the the connection between verse 16 and verse 25. Uh, Walk by the Spirit. Live by the Spirit in 25. Keep in step with the Spirit. These phrases all repeat the same idea that the Christian life, uh, far from being about keeping a set of rules is about staying close to, in proximity to, in alignment with the Holy Spirit. As the Spirit in cooperation with us forms within us the character necessary to to be free, free to fulfill the role God created us for. Really, if you get nothing else, if you don't remember anything else, just I want you to remember this. There's one habit takes many forms, but there's one habit of life we are called to, individually and as a church, to walk by the Spirit, to walk in the Spirit, to walk in close step with the Spirit. Now, part of our child-rearing, we've discovered, is figuring out what to do when Anna's not in school and thinks that the only thing left to do is play. We've tried to convince her that all of the work that my wife and I have to get done around the house is our play, and she can join with us in the play if she would like. She's not yet wise to the fact that we're actually trying to teach her life skills. Uh, our, our purpose, of course, is that we want her to be a fully functioning, fairly uh, self-autonomous adult human being who is rightly ordered within a community and a church and all of that. So as we're making dinner, cleaning up, taking care of the chickens, working in the garage, whatever, we invite her along with that. So she gets to learn how to chop an onion, how to scrub baseboards, how to take care of the chickens, care for an animal, uh, how to change the oil in the car. <laughs> I almost thought I'd get a round of applause there from some of you. You know, and those, those skills, yeah, those skills are necessary for being an adult, but there's, there's more important skills that we're also trying to communicate in the way we do these things, uh, you know, like courage and restraint and, and cool judgment under pressure and care for others. Uh, but the one thing that all of that skill transfer has in common is that she's got to follow closely behind us. 
She's kind of slow. I've gotten in the habit saying, to saying to her very often, if you want to walk, talk with me, you've got to walk with me. If you want to talk with me, you've got to walk with me because I'm moving. You need to keep up. And so she walks and we talk. And, and the closer she falls, follows behind and the more of, of what I'm doing and what my wife is doing, the more it rubs off on her and she gets the opportunity to participate with us, the more these things begin to come naturally to her. <clears throat> Excuse me. I don't want her to grow up and have to get out a manual to learn how to change the oil in her car. You know, step one, buy oil. <clears throat> Excuse me, step two, buy a filter. I just want her to jack up the car, put the drain pan down, and get it done without having to think about it. I want it to be second nature. And it's the same for us with the Spirit. We have to walk closely behind the Spirit to learn the fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, or put more succinctly, faith, hope, and love. We have to walk behind the Spirit, walk closely with the Spirit to form the character needed to achieve the purpose for which God has placed us on this earth. Now, I'm already over time, so I'm just going to briefly give you three application points that come to mind. What do we do with this this week? I think the first one's the hardest one. Because the first is to call ourselves, uh, to be called, or to, to, to submit ourselves, I should say, to transformation to submit ourselves to a different kind of freedom than we're used to enjoying. You know, as long as we think that freedom means freedom from, so I can choose whatever my deepest self wants to choose, we will never find, we'll never be formed to find the life that God desires for us. We'll, we'll go through this life trying to figure it out until eventually we end up in heaven. But we don't have to wait. We can experience it now. But there's more joy to be had in freedom too than freedom from. I know freedom from feels more free, but it's really its own kind of enslavement. Freedom to, freedom for a relationship with God opens up new vistas of expression that we would have never found otherwise. I cannot walk over to that piano and sit down and begin suddenly playing Bach cantatas. If I want to be free to express myself like that, I'm going to need to voluntarily restrict myself for a very long time under very good teachers, some very good habits, before I'll finally be free, free for, not free from. Right now, I'm free from playing piano scales, but I'm certainly not free to play the piano. So one, submit yourself to transformation. That may just begin by telling God, I don't know that I agree with what that guy is saying, but if there really is more freedom to be found in you than apart from you, help me, show me a glimpse of what that looks like. Second, pray for grace. You know, we can't become who God is calling us to be through our own effort alone. Our effort is part of it, certainly. Uh, we cooperate with the Spirit in that we, again, repeatedly imagine what would it look like if I were loving at peace and then act that way until we become that way. But we need to pray for grace, grace for God to draw near to us through His Spirit, grace that we could discern the Spirit's leading and how He's working in different areas of our life, pr grace that we may say in step with Him. But finally, third, do the work. You know, we can't just sit back and expect the transformation to come. It's not how God has created us. It's not how he decides, has decided to form us. We have to, to do the work as much as a tennis player has to do the work of practicing a backswing until they can nail it under pressure. We need to practice the fruit 
of the Spirit, through the Spirit's empowerment, through our own effort, but practice faith, hope, and love, even when we don't feel like them, and so that one day we'll discover, wow, I actually do feel like that. I've grown. C.S. Lewis reminds us that God became man to turn creatures into sons, not simply to produce better men of the old kind, uh, but to to produce a new kind of man. He says it's not like teaching a horse to jump better and better, but like turning a horse into a winged creature. So stop trying to jump higher and higher on your own. Christ has given you wings. It's on us to strengthen them. And as we do, he is going to show us heights of faith and hope and love that we could have never imagined achieving without him. Father, you have not just called us to this life. You have also purchased this life for us. You have modeled this life for us. You have given us the path to this life in the spirit. Father, help us to fix our gaze on you. Help us to see there is more freedom in you than there is apart from you, that it is better to be your slave than to be your enemy. Free us from the paralyzing anxiety of choice and draw our hearts into a new kind of freedom, a freedom for what you created us to be in the first place. We will continually praise you because you have purchased